This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two term incumbents, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And soon we're going to be joined here in The Party Room by Michelle Grattan, one of our faves, to talk about the economy. Because as they say in the classics, when it comes to politics, PK, it's always the economy stupid. And in the run-up to the federal budget, which is now less than three weeks away, people, bright ideas for what to spend the money on are coming in thick and fast, many of them at the government's own urging. So we'll get Michelle's insights into how the Treasurer is likely to respond come Budget Day on May the 9th. We're also going to talk about Peter Dutton's reshuffle of the Coalition front bench. It was necessary after the resignation of the Shadow Attorney-General and Shadow Indigenous Affairs Minister Julian Lisa over The Voice, which was then followed by the shock resignation of the Shadow Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews, so opening up to quite a major rearrangement of the deck chairs there by Peter Dutton. We're going to get to all that in a moment, but first, PK, I think a lot of Australians have a lot to say about the Reserve Bank Board these days, uh, more than previous days, after 11 interest rate rises. You know, I think there's more interest than usual in an announcement of a review of the Reserve Bank, which is released today as we record this uh, podcast on a Thursday morning. Contrary to popular opinion, this Reserve Bank review was not prompted by calls for the RBA Governor Philip Lowe to be sacked after his reassurances last year that rates wouldn't rise before 2024. In fact, Labor promised this um, review Mm. of the Reserve Bank back in 2021. It's the first in 40 years, taking a look at the Reserve Bank's role in the persistent weaknesses of the economy and the failure to meet its inflation target for the past six years. So it was on the cards anyway. And it's an extremely extensive review done by very serious people. It's come up with 51 recommendations. The Treasurer says the government will adopt them all. But PK, what this review won't do is tell us whether Philip Lowe is for the high jump or not, or whether his job as head of the bank is going to be extended. It's about other stuff, some very major stuff. (laughs) Um, So um, it's going to probably lead to some big shifts, I think. Huge shifts. Uh, So it is a big shake-up after many decades. And what I think is really interesting politically is that it's got bipartisan support. And we talk about bipartisanship a lot, or the lack of it. But on this one, Actually, Jim Chalmers has brought Angus Taylor in throughout the whole process and does actually broadly have bipartisan support. Now, that was really important. I just want to talk about the politics a bit. It's been very important for the government. They didn't want to deal with Adam Bant, who who goes a lot further. I mean, just listen to him here. A major party stitch-up isn't going to fix the inflation problem. We need uh, more than just outsourcing the uh, issue of tackling inflation to the RBA, which is what Liberal and Labor want to do. So there you go. Uh, Major stitch up. um, Well, okay, they have been negotiating and talking and so there's some broad agreement. But is it controversial? Well, there's going to be two boards instead of one, a monetary policy board and a governance board. The monetary policy board is going to be full of experts to set the interest rate. And it really does follow a similar approach to the Bank of Canada, Bank of England. 
really, when you talk about the shake-up, Fran, and, and the future for the RBA governor, you're right. The decision on the RBA governor's future, Phil, I won't even be made until July. But the, the broader scope of this, there is big changes. You, you won't get your interest rates set every month. It'll be like six weeks. Communication's going to be key, communicating more. That follows models overseas as well. But some of the fundamental questions, like, for instance, um, where inflation is set at, that's not changing. And, and there were some who wanted that to change. That's still going to be the 2 to 3% um, range. Yeah, and probably measures to make the, the bank overall, the board, more transparent, more accountable and, and maybe dilute the power of the governor. But, PK, with this announcement out of the way, the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, will now be focused solely on the budget in May, not long away. Money is tight. We know that. The economy is sort of staggering under a trillion dollars of debt. Jim Chalmers has promised a budget of restraint and repair. Nevertheless, the need for new spending and the calls for new spending are coming from all directions. M- many of those directions from reviews the Albanese government commissioned early on itself. So it asked people to come up with ideas. And the Women's Economic Equality Task Force and the Economic Inclusion Task Force have done that. They've come up with plenty of ideas, $34 billion to be precise from the Economic Inclusion Committee, um, primarily a 40% boost to job seeker to bring it up to just under $1,000 a fortnight. So still less than the age pension, but a big boost nevertheless to that payment. And also an increase in Commonwealth rent allowance for the one and a half million Australians who currently have receive it. The Women's Economic Task Force also wants a boost for rental assistance because, you know, low rental vacancies and rising rents hit women in particular. But the priority for the Women's Equality Task Force is the single parenting payment for women with children over eight. They want that age extended and that's estimated to cost around $1.4 billion in the first year. So these are really big, big amounts of money, PK. They're not one-offs. They're, they're ongoing costs, so they need to be built permanently into the budget along with you know money to be spent on aged care, money to be spent on childcare. The government is really under pressure from committees they've set up. They've set them up. That's right. Uh, I, I've kind of described them a few times as kind of booby traps that the government actually set for itself. It commissioned the Women's Economic Task Force ahead of the October budget last year, and they said they want to make women's economic equality and security a key pillar of budgetary measures going forward, a gender lens, all of this. So they are kind of ideologically, policy-wise, tied to its recommendations Uh, But fiscally, they are in a tight spot. And when I say booby trap, well, the other booby trap is the Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee, which is being referred to as the Macklin Report. Jenny Macklin, who was a long-term senior minister in the Rudd-Gillard governments. In fact, she she was the minister who signed off on the single parenting benefit being capped at that eight years old, Mm. uh, eight eight years of age, a a decision which I think she's said since she's left left politics that she regrets, I think. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it was the coalition that first changed. It was actually Peter Dutton uh, when he was a junior minister who changed that rule and then the, the the largely women who were grandfathered on it so they were still on the higher payment because it was, you know, there was two categories mm. of people. Then they were taken off it. So Labor kind of finished a policy that had begun under the coalition and now has been briefed to tell them to reverse it, <laughs> right? Um, so this is... This is going to be difficult territory for them. Like, politically, they can't snub all of this. 
Just to remind people, the government said yes to this Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee because David Pocock, Senator David Pocock, the independent senator who's a balance of power player in the Senate, he wanted it and it was promised in exchange for his vote for the government's workplace reforms back in December. So this was a trade-off the government did last year and now they've got to pay the piper, so to speak, or do they? Will they? It doesn't look to me, although I've spoken to others who say, oh, look, you know, it's not fully ruled out. And that's where you might see some movement on rent assistance. You might see some movement on some of the women's measures, on changing some of the welfare programs. I'm not going to get into all of the recommendations. There's a lot of detail here, but you, you will see some movement. But I don't think you're going to see that huge, big increase to the unemployment no. benefit because... They, they say they can't afford it. Now, of course, budgets are about choices and there are other choices being made, subs and big expensive programs, but they have made a, a decision that they can't do it now and that's been backed by the opposition. I asked Angus Taylor on RM Breakfast, he said that was a, the wise decision. So again, bipartisanship <laughs> on that one. Um, but all of this is going to be an issue for Labor because they said that, you know, what was that line from Anthony Albanese? People continually on our text line on RM Breakfast quote it to me, which is no one left behind. Well, that will dog the government because inequality has been rising in this country. And of course, with the cost of living catastrophe, it's a pretty bad situation for many people. They will be under pressure to Mm. deliver for the most vulnerable. They sure will. And I think this is a perfect time to bring in Michelle because she has seen a lot of budgets in her time covering federal politics. Should we do it? Let's do it. Michelle Bratton is Chief Political Correspondent with The Conversation, Professorial Fellow at Canberra University and our Party Room guest. Welcome, Michelle. Hello there. And Michelle, I can see you're in a party mood. That's great. You love budget time. You've seen a lot of budgets in your, in your time. You've covered a lot of budgets. It's always hard for a government to make everyone a winner. In fact, they never manage it, really. There are always some losers. The current fiscal circumstances definitely mean some people are going to be disappointed. How hard is it? for the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, to frame a budget in an environment like this one with such heavy debt and heavy load on the on the budget? I think it's very difficult because it comes at a time when people are really feeling these cost of living pressures and they've been getting worse, of course, over recent months with all the interest rate rises and price rises. At the same time, it's clear that the Treasurer does want to do what he can to achieve budget repair, yet some of the the figures in the budget won't necessarily reinforce his case because in the near term, the government will have quite a lot of windfall revenue from high commodity prices and and company profits and the like. And yet the message from the Treasurer is that uh, over the longer term, the budget is in trouble, faces increasing spending demands and has to be uh, – the problems have to be addressed. So it's a complicated situation made more difficult, of course, by these uh, recent uh, reports that uh, are demanding action on various fronts and, and very expensive action at that. Well, we mentioned obviously the unemployment call, but there's also the Women's Economic Task Force and 
they are also making lots of demands already. We've seen the Finance Minister, Katie Gallagher, and the Treasurer respond saying they can't fund every good idea. Well, yeah, duh. And promising that there'll be some assistance. But is there likely to be much more than we already know, like childcare increases, energy bill relief. They're the ones that they keep pointing to. But is that going to be enough, Michelle, or will they need to go further? I would be very surprised if they didn't do something in response to the report on the women's economic security and the inclusion report. I think that they're trying to manage expectations here, saying, well, Obviously, we can't spend all the money that uh, these reports are are calling for. But on the other hand, I think that uh, they would be in trouble if nothing was picked up from these uh, two reports. So I think we'll see something. The question is how generous, how modest. Yeah, and the uh, Crossbench, you know, they're not in a mood, I think, at the moment to be much impressed by good intentions. They do want to see cold, hard cash for women, for the unemployed. We've already had David Pocock, the independent senator, point out there's, you know, half a trillion dollars found for AUKUS subs and inland rail when the government want to find it. The Women's Economic Equality Task Force and others are eyeing off the stage three tax cuts. That's quarter of a trillion dollars, rather, mm-hmm. over 10 years. Those tax cuts, as I see it, are worth nearly $18 billion in the first year, 2024-25. That's more than enough for that job seeker relief and the single parenting change. Will the government be tempted, do you think, on stage three tax cuts, Michelle? I know Anthony Albanese doesn't want to be pinned into, you know, breaking an election promise, but it's got to be tempting. Well, I think that they have... Uh, uh resisted that temptation to the extent it is a temptation for this budget because they've been pretty clear that there's going to be no change to those stage three tax cuts, which of course don't come in uh, for another year or so Mm. uh, in this budget. So what happens in a later budget, which would be of course closer to the election and things are more difficult, uh, is another matter. But for now, those tax cuts are baked in and not being changed. But we've got, for instance, Tasmanian Senator Jackie Lambie. She's also a balance of power player in the Senate. So she's important for the government long term. She's saying those tax cuts have got to go. Her and fellow Tasmanian Andrew Wilkie are both calling for those tax cuts to go now, pointing out that politicians are going to be $9,000 better off after those tax cuts saying they don't need it, but people with less in less fortunate circumstances do. And they were not impressed by an analysis of the Australia Institute of the tax cuts, which show that hardly any of it goes to Tasmania, for instance. So there will be ongoing pressure on the government to give some ground to reshape these tax cuts in some way over time, won't there? Over time, maybe, but as I say, it would be a, a huge uh, backflip if the government uh, mm. did anything in this budget, given all it said. In fact, its rhetoric, if anything, I think in recent times has become tougher. It certainly has. Look, we're recording this Thursday morning. Fred and I have already talked a little bit about this RBA review. The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, releasing that and saying that the government's going to support all 51 recommendations. And my goal here throughout is a world-class central bank which is more effective, more transparent and more independent, calling on more expertise to make its important decisions. 
It is the first big change to the RBA for for a very, very long time, many decades. And the the report recommends that the current board focus should be on the operation of the bank rather than the setting of interest rates every month. How significant a change is this? The big thing coming out of this review is that there will be two boards. There will be a, a board of experts which will... Uh, deal with monetary policy, set interest rates, and then there'll be the other board dealing with everything else. But the fact that there are two boards, of course, broadens the scope to get a more representative uh, group of people uh, on the Reserve Bank. And I would be very surprised if we don't see, over coming times, the the, uh, unions again represented on... on one or other of the boards. Mm. A bit of a pivot to another topic, and that's the Coalition's cabinet reshuffle, which happened earlier this week. Now, we saw the elevation of two Indigenous senators, Northern Territory uh, Senator Jacinta Nabajimba-Price, who was promoted to the Shadow Cabinet as the Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, and South Australian Senator Karen Little, promoted to the Shadow Minister for Child Protection and Prevention of Family Violence. Now, both women are also going to be no campaigners on the voice to parliament. I think uh, very much um, Jacinda Price's whole focus this year is going to be very much on that. Michelle, swapping out Julian Lisa, a long-time advocate for the voice for Senator Nabajimpa Price, who is really has been the kind of one of the leaders of the no campaign, it's a real change of tone for the coalition uh, and ensures, I think, in, inevitably a pretty hard line on all of this, right? Yes, I think it does, and I think that she will certainly sharpen and focus the coalition's arguments uh, pretty strongly uh, against the voice. One interesting point is that initially, I think it was not Peter Dutton's intention to appoint her to this post. There was uh, some concern, but she is, of course, a senator who sits in the Nationals' party room and therefore her appointment means that the Nationals have a a disproportionate uh, number on the um, uh, front bench of the Shadow Cabinet compared to what's uh, their entitlement under the coalition agreement. And I think there was some concern that uh, if she was appointed... Liberal noses would be put out of joint and people who'd been there a lot longer, after all she only came in at the last election, that they would be uh, not happy about that. But what we saw over the last few days or the days before the reshuffle was more and more uh, attention on her, more media appearances by her, calls by no advocates that uh, she should be put into the job and eventually she was. Um, and this wasn't the only part of the reshuffle, too, because after Julian Lisa announced he was going to quit the front bench, then another senior Liberal front bench, Karen Andrews, also announced she'd step down uh, as Shadow Home Affairs Minister and will not re- recontest her seat on the Gold Coast at the next election. Now, Karen Andrews has been um, a leader really in pushing for more female representation within the Liberal Party. And after she announced that she was going to leave, she spoke to Patricia on RM Breakfast. And one of the things she talked about was that the cost of living should be a key priority 
for the coalition, Michelle, almost suggesting that you know it should it should take up a lot more focus of Peter Dutton and the opposition than the Voice. At the end of the day, people people are very um, concerned about what affects their daily life. So at the moment, that does happen to be interest rates, repaying their mortgage, renting a property, the cost of renting a property if they can uh, find one. So, Michelle, how does this feed into or make sense of Peter Dutton's strategy of, you know, clearly elevating um, a, a fight on the voice, if you like? Is there a danger for him and for the opposition that, that the voice will distract from their focus on inflicting pain on the government over cost of living issues? Is, is this, as Karen Andrews suggests, a mistake? I think there are all sorts of dangers uh in the whole voice uh, argument for the opposition. Clearly, we, as we know, they've deeply, deeply divided over this. And even Karen Andrews, who said she supported the coalition position, made it very clear that she wasn't, as she put it, going to be out there wearing a, a no T-shirt. So she was talking about uh, consulting with her electorate and listening to the arguments and so on. So at every level, the voice is a bad issue for Peter Dutton, one he's he's sort of become stuck with in a way. As for the cost of living, well, yes, that's the logical point for the coalition to be concentrating on in its campaigning. But as we saw with Aston, where they did concentrate on the cost of living and, and where the voice was not an issue at all, uh, he did badly, lost that seat. But it's so, the only real pathway or hope for Peter Dutton and Coalition back to any kind of, you know, being in the contest at the next election, isn't it? Is the economy, if the economy goes bad or is well, going that, bad already? That's right. But the thing is that people are not blaming the government at this point for those problems. They're realising that these are really issues beyond the government's control and they still like the style, I think, of Anthony Albanese. They're still impressed with him. They like the somewhat less fractious politics than we had under the Morrison government. And until some of that changes, I think even if the coalition pursued the cost of living totally, it, it still wouldn't be making much progress. Look, Michelle, you know, the reshuffle, if we can broaden it out, okay, there's, there's some, you know, key appointments and obviously the, it had to happen. Uh, Peter Dutton lost a couple of front benches and, and it had to happen. Mm -hmm. But the broader direction is still really um, at the centre of the debate, not just the position on The Voice, but what's broadly going on and the way that the positioning has affected the, the party's standing. Now, the reshuffle comes as opposition leader Peter Dutton's personal approval rating has dived to minus 28%, down from minus 11% just a month ago, and that's in the Resolve poll. It is really, it's a record low for him. What does it mean? Like, what are we seeing here um, happen to the Liberal Party? Is it, a, is it a shift that is really dangerous for them? I think what we're seeing is that the party really doesn't know how to position itself. It's lost its balance within the parliamentary party and certainly doesn't have any balance 
its grassroots membership level. In other words, it's tilted to the right in the parliamentary party and in the membership at large. Of course, all those moderates were lost to the the teals and that's all made its positioning much harder. I think that Peter Dutton would happily position or or willingly at least position in the centre, but that's not where the party is. It also is just facing this uh, climate, as I spoke about before, of people being satisfied with the government, not blaming the government. I think it does need to get some policy work seriously underway. Now, of course, what we saw with Labor was they didn't uh, release key policies like, for example, on climate change until quite close to the election. And that was a strategic decision. And the Liberals could think maybe that's the way to go. But the problem is that unless it does get some policy out early, that... um, people just won't know where it stands. That's the problem where they look negative too, isn't it? They do look negative and they have been on a range of issues. It is interesting, I think, that on the Reserve Bank reforms that uh, they're taking actually the opposite attitude. Uh, Angus Taylor's been quite involved in that process. Jim Chalmers has wanted to involve him because he doesn't want to be haggling with the crossbenchers in the Senate. He wants bipartisanship, and uh, it certainly looks as though that's going to be given. Just on the policy front, though, one of the other elements of the reshuffle from Peter Dutton was to elevate James Patterson, who's you know regarded as a bit of a China hawk, to the Home Affairs portfolio. So that's, again, a bit of a change of uh, tone, if you like, swapping out Karen Andrews from that portfolio to someone like James Patterson. He's, you know, ambitious, he's talented, he's seen as a rising star within the Liberal Party. Um, that's going to be quite a, a match-up with the current Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, also smart, ambitious and a rising star, on policy issues and policy issues that have been sort of a happy hunting ground, if you like, for the coalition in the past, haven't they? Yes, that's right. I think that it was logical, however, because James Patterson already had cyber security and foreign interference. So he had uh, key elements of that portfolio. He is, as you say, a, a hawk, but he's also pretty knowledgeable and pretty articulate in the area. So I do think he will be able to be quite a, a, a strong voice in putting the uh, coalition's case. Michelle, thank you for letting uh, us pick your brain um, and to have you on the podcast. Really appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thanks, Michelle. We'll move to questions without notice. I'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. The bells are ringing. That time is the time for question time. And we've actually got a question this week from Rowan and you can hear him. Hi, Fran. Hi, PK. Love the show. Uh, I've got a question for you. Jacinta Price, the new Shadow Indigenous Affairs Minister, is a country Liberal senator from the Northern Territory, but she sits in the National Party party room in Canberra. What's the difference between the country Liberal Party in the NT and the Liberal Party in Canberra? Uh, Is it actually part of the National Party? What's going on? Well, thank you, Rowan. Very good question. Thanks for listening. Um, Great question. The 
Clue is in the name, I think. There is a significant difference between the CLP in the Northern Territory and the Liberal Party in Canberra because there's a huge difference between the electorates. So, as I say, the clue is in the name. It's the country Liberal Party. Generally, those elected members, uh, federal CLP members, choose in Canberra to sit as part of the National Party party room. They don't have to, and I don't think that's always been the case, but they generally sit there because it's generally closer to a reflection of the concerns of their party in the Northern Territory. That, that's how I've always seen it anyway. Yeah, that Fran's right. But, you know, I was told by a senior person, look, ultimately they can make a choice about where they sit. She's sitting in the Nationals, just into Nubba Price. And look, in this case, it hasn't hurt her, has it? Uh, usually you'd wonder, oh, how does the quota work? But the quota got ignored in this case. You, sort of, you get a certain number in the ministry and how many positions they're allowed, which represent your numbers in the broader coalition party room. So obviously the Nationals, they're a smaller party. Well, Peter Dutton has essentially given them an extra and in, in the shadow cabinet in Jacinda Nupajipa Price because he's made the calculation and I, I get why he's done it actually because he, he's decided to go with the no case and she is the biggest and most influential figure in the no case. So it makes sense if you want to execute the no case to do what he's done, even though he's really parachuted her right into that shadow cabinet and rather than that incremental approach where you go into the outer ministry first. So that's what's happened. And Rowan, that is unleashed a whole new can of worms and I'm sure if you did a lot of work talking to people in the coalition front bench, there'd be a bit of disquiet about that, about her being uh, sent in a number of price being elevated so quickly and also the Libs giving away a position to the Nats. So all of that's going on, but Peter Dutton did it nevertheless. So thank you for your question. It was a beauty. It was a beauty. All right. Well, that's it for the party room this week. Thank you so much for your company. Keep sending your questions in. We do love them. You send them, you can email them to the party room at abc.net.au. You can also send them in as a voice note. We love getting the voice questions too. Follow us, review us, do all the good things. That's it from us. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.